Hello and welcome to another episode of The Gold Podcast. My name is Boaz Shoshan. I'm an editor at South Bank Research and I'm joined today by John Butler. John is the chief executive of uh, the Lend and Borrow Trust Company, which uh, deals in precious metals lending and borrowing. I've been re- I was reading a, a book recently. I'm not, you, may, you may have read it. It has been called one of the, the classic American novels, even though it's uh, relatively recent, uh, called Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. Right, it's a it's a very grim, grisly, grisly novel, uh, but it takes place in uh, Mexico, I think, uh, in the in the mid eighteen hundreds. But the it's about this group of uh, bounty hunters, effectively, who are who have been tasked to uh, to um, kill just a load of the uh, the the I think it's Apaches and, and other uh, Native Americans who have been terrorizing uh, some towns. But they've been given this this remit. They will be paid for every scalp that they deliver to the governor of a town. Oh, my right? God. Right. right. It, it, get, it, it, is, <laughs> uh, it is really hauntingly very, very dark and grisly novel. But uh, what, this is, this is a, a case of where all they're targeting, they, it, it, ceased to, it ceases to become the Native Americans that they're hunting. And they're just, they're just getting scalps for the sake of scalps because they'll, they'll get paid for every single scalp they deliver. So they end up killing you know, all sorts of other people. Um, in order to get these scalps uh, that they can then they can get they they can then get for money, but it's this is this idea that when you when you give somebody this this directive that you know you have to if you um, achieve X then then we will then good things happen, uh, and so when you have the when you have this metric of more scalps equals you know more more payout and it, uh, all of the all of the stuff around the side ceases to uh, ceases to matter. Um, and then the, there's an interesting. I, I was I was reading a bit on uh, the Vietnam War where you had uh, Robert McNamara, the Defense Secretary, Secretary at the time, one of these uh, guys who really brought statistics into military policy. So they were targeting the Vietnam War. Uh, he he was just this. He was just going crazy for data being recorded that they could then find some way of using all this data to uh, figure out the correct response. Um, and so they were, you know, taking all the body count of, of the Viet Cong was prioritized. And similarly, you know, with Blood Meridian, you know, they what ended up happening was troops would kill more people, some of whom weren't Viet Cong, just have a higher body count because that meant good things for them um, in order. And that would that would lead to a, a better outcome from McNamara's perspective. But, it, it you know, it, it didn't it didn't work out. And it was a total, total catastrophe. Um but is it is that interesting? Uh, good Goodhart's law idea, where you have, uh, as soon as a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Um, so you know, in the case of uh, higher body count, it be it becoming a target rather than a uh, rather than simply a, a piece of data that you know is 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 uh, taken from battlefield when it becomes a target for future battles you know all, all hell breaks loose so the idea that you're by targeting growth as well as targeting everything else adding another target uh, will somehow lead to a better outcome uh, that doesn't seem to doesn't seem to be the right the, the right perspective from my perspective uh, from from my view anyway but in terms of uh, the the whole keynesian thing neo-keynesian and you, you read and you referred to MMT uh, bef- before we came on air here. I uh, I think from from the outside, from an outsider perspective, not many people know what all of these things really stand for. Uh, we had get a, a, a discussion with on Keynes with Alistair McLeod, a colleague of yours, uh, uh, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And I was I was um, what do you, how how did this all start between the various modern academic uh, approaches to economics and managing economies? 
Well, my God, I mean, I mean, let's, I mean, just uh, let, let's, okay, let's go back to kind of the beginning of economics itself. Uh, and many people associate that with Adam Smith. Now, that said, there were many important antecedents uh, prior to Smith coming around. And in fact, Smith himself, if you uh, get really deep into Smith and don't just read The Wealth of Nations, but read uh, the, the text of his lectures that he gave at the University of Glasgow, um, fine, it might be tedious, but there's all kinds of references uh, in those lectures to scholars that preceded him. So, okay, but fine, let's give Smith some credit for synthesizing a lot of ideas in one masterful uh, work, The Wealth of Nations. But what's going to happen is that Smith will be associated, and rightly so, with this laissez-faire attitude. That is, that the, the whole point of economics and understanding economics is basically to understand what happens in the marketplace. You know, why do people... What, you know, what, why do people work? Why do they save? Why do they spend? Why do they invest? What determines interest rates? What determines prices? What determines you know, the wealth of nations, ultimately, where he tries to you know, pull it all together? And when doing so, you know, he has this very sort of laissez-faire attitude about it because he believes that, at least based on everything that he can see, and, include, and, and indeed the scholars that he will cite, again, in the, in the, in the lectures, if not in the Wealth of Nations itself, um, that the, the spontaneous invisible hand outcomes you know, generated by the marketplace are ultimately the ones that serve society the best and contribute, therefore, to the Wealth of Nations. Okay, that idea will be challenged initially and this may surprise many, by Marx. Marx is actually the first economist, if you want to call Marx that, to come along and basically say, well, this sounds nice on paper, but in practice, it concentrates wealth, it leads to inequality, it leads to social disorder, but hey, actually, in the long run, that's a good thing because we're going to end up at this communist nirvana if we just, you know, if we just work at it long enough. Right. Okay. So people think that Marx is super modern and, uh, and that there was some sort of linear evolution from very, very laissez-faire, say, on the one hand, to you know a, a very aggressive communist outlook on the other. Actually, no. I mean, Marx is going to be just about the first guy to really weigh in heavily post-Smith. And then what happens after Marx is this debate, this debate as to whether indeed central planning works or doesn't work. So Smith said it doesn't really work. You should let the marketplace work its magic, invisible hand. And then Marx, on the other hand, saying, no, 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 we really do need a command economy because capitalism will destroy itself. Okay. Um, and so the following century, and this leads through the Great Depression, is this debate. Command economy or free market? Command economy or free market? And to be honest, we're still having that debate today. Mm. And so we go through one iteration after another. And, you know, the Great Depression was a major iteration where the command economy people eventually won because they pointed to the prolonged weak growth in the wake of the, uh, you know, various crises, including the, the stock market crash in the United States, but also a, a series of crises in, in continental Europe and the UK. And they said, hey, no, you know, you've got to intervene. And so Keynes kind of wins the argument in that particular iteration. And Keynesianism is born, the idea that, you know, when private sector demand is weak, it's the government's role to step in and spend money, deficit spending, uh, and to manage economic cycles accordingly and to prevent things like depressions or even recessions from happening. Um, but that's thoroughly discredited with the stagflationary 1970s when central bankers think they have it all figured out, but they end up with this weak growth but rising inflation situation, in, in, in particular in the U.S. and U.K., but to some extent other countries. And then, of course, we have you know, other crises along the way, and 2008 being the biggest one in recent memory. And at this point, you know, everyone goes right back to uh, the lessons or what they think the lessons are of the Great Depression, and they throw an unprecedented amount of stimulus at economies, both physical and monetary. And this is the neo-Keynesian synthesis, the idea that 
Yes, you want to try to use the monetary levers as best you can, but the government also needs to be spending money. You should be working both sides to try to manage the economy. Work the monetary side, work the fiscal side, try to coordinate across the gap. Which is really the big command economy idea, really. Well, they say in a way it's not, because the monetarist side, they say, oh, we're just trying to keep the system liquid. We're not telling the money where to go. Yeah, We're right. just creating it. Right. And making sure there is sufficient liquidity for whoever would want to use well, can, it. Well, can we wind back a bit here because we are we are we are already in the in the modern the modern time. But why was it that Keynes was? Why does Keynes have such a huge influence from your perspective on modern economic uh, theory? And what do you make of his original ideas? Well, this is I mean this is this is going to sound a bit cynical, but I think it's a fair position to hold, uh, which is that. Keynes was the first modern economist. By modern, I mean one who used, you know, numbers and equations that, that a modern economist would recognize. He was the first modern economist to conclude that there was a role for economists. <laughs> that, right. is that, that, that is that politicians and central bankers can and should manage the economy, and they need to employ lots of economists in order to enable them to do that effectively. It, it ju Keynes justifies economists' own existence to themselves, and it justifies politicians mucking around with the economy for better or worse. It's self-serving. and I Created I, an industry. There you go. And, and I know that sounds cynical, but actually I think it's a very fair position to hold, and I think there's a lot of evidence to that effect. Hmm. That's interesting. But in terms of Keynes and then neo-Keynesianism, what are, what are the principles of Keynes and how have they changed when they get to neo-Keynesianism? Keynes focused on fiscal policy because he looked at the Great Depression when the banking system totally seized up and he kind of said, look, you can create all the money you want, but uh, in the same way you can lead a horse to water, you can't make it drink. And so he saw in the 1930s lots of liquidity being thrown around by central banks but not getting any traction. And this is where he thought, aha, this is the, the missing piece of the puzzle is that when you get into that so-called liquidity trap, the government, needs the to government just spending. needs to step up and spend. Yeah. And, 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 they, and it, it, he came up with this famous analogy, pay people to dig holes in the ground and fill them up again. Literally anything that puts people to work and puts money in their pocket will eventually restart the economy. So it's similar to sort of uh, the ghost cities in China, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Right, just fiscal if, policy for the sake of fiscal policy. Yes, but he felt he felt that as an, a temporary emergency measure that was justified. Now, the, the, the flip side of Keynes is always forgotten, which is that once the economy does recover, the government should run surpluses. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it should pay down the debt, maybe not in its entirety, but some portion thereof. That's the part that modern economists conveniently forget. forget. Right. And they conveniently forget because, of course, the politicians they're advising never want to hear that part of it. Nope. Right? They, don't, they don't want to be the politician responsible for cutting spending. No. Right? No. You know, savings is a four-letter word to a politician, right? Right. <laughs> it's, right. <laughs> it's one you don't, you don't use and get reelected at the same time. Right. Um, so, again, this, this, in my opinion, it may come across a bit cynical, but I think there's an awful lot of evidence to suggest that this really is you know, what explains um, the, the, the rise of initially Keynesianism and then neo-Keynesianism, which is more Keynesian than monetarist. It does, it does purport to combine the two. All right. So yeah, what's well, neo-Keynesianism? Neo-Keynesianism is the, is the idea that you want to use the monetary levers as far as you possibly can, mm -hmm. up to and including unconventional monetary policy, before the government steps in with physical policy and it tries to synthesize that in a systematic way so by pulling so what levers would normal keynesianism not pull 
So not normal Keynesian. They would go straight to fiscal policy. Right. Yeah. As the, soon as as soon as the economy showed uh, any evidence of a sharp downturn, they would say so stimulate, stimulate, stimulate. On but the that fiscal would be side. On yeah. the fiscal side. They That's wouldn't right. pull the rates all the way down to zero and then you know QE and whatever. That, that, well, I mean, they again a, a neo Keynesian would, but a raw yeah, Keynesian, a, Keynesian a raw would. Keynesian would say that monetary stuff. You know, maybe it has a small impact around the margins, but really what matters is fiscal policy. Right, right. Whereas the neo Keynesian will say no, no, no. The 1970s and Milton Friedman and the monetarists taught us that money does matter. And so the neo-Keynesians try to synthesize all of it. Right. So they yank the levers all the way down to zero, the QE, whatever. And then if and then finally, yes. the cavalry, fiscal that, that's, that's right. Cavalry and, and it doesn't mean you don't do any fiscal stimulus along the way. But the idea is that you generally lead with monetary and then follow through with, with fiscal. Right. Yeah. Right. And then what, so what's the monetarist angle then? Well, the monetarist angle is that is that the government should just stay out of it uh, and that they should keep spending more or less constant. And yeah, if you occasionally slip into deficit, that's okay. But it implies you occasionally slip into surplus as well. What really matters is that you simply maintain a relatively steady growth of the money supply, however defined. Now, <laughs> that's another problem. Back to Goodhart's law, as you're saying, defining the, defining the money supply. I mean, good luck with that. There are so many working definitions of the money supply, and they're constantly changing uh, based on the way money is originated and circulates throughout the economy. And this was um, this was a problem in the early uh, 1980s. Paul Volcker talked about targeting money and. Uh, it, it, it led to you know, redefinitions of what, you know, what, what, what the money supply is. Should you target narrow money? Should you target broad money? Mm. Um, that opens a real can of worms. But in principle, that's what Friedman was getting at. And by narrow money and broad money, we're referring to not not just you know notes in circulation, but you know mostly bank deposits, loans, etc. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And eventually, you get into very broad measures of liquidity that even include uh, that even go beyond money market funds um, and include uh, securities for repo and all, all kinds of things. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And what's MMT? So modern monetary theory or monetary? Yeah, this is one step beyond neo Keynesianism. Actually, it's, I think they would claim it's probably multiple steps beyond. This is the idea that um, not only should the authorities be prepared to use both monetary and fiscal policy to manage the economy, but that they should they should explicitly target a growth rate. That is, not just target, say, a price stability the way a central bank does, on the one hand, and not just have some sort of vague idea what the potential growth rate of the economy is, uh, but they should actually make it policy, right? They should they should go out and they should say, okay, you know, we um, we believe that the, uh, our economy is capable of growing at you know, whatever it is, say two percent a year in real terms, and we believe that the ideal inflation rate uh, that's you know, compatible and sustainable with that is say also two percent, uh, and so we're going to target four percent nominal GDP growth. And to the extent that nominal GDP growth falls below that, it almost doesn't matter whether it falls below it for monetary reasons, that is purely inflationary reasons, or or real growth reasons. Yeah, it doesn't We're matter. just going to stimulate if we slip below it, below it. And on the other hand, if we rise above it, we're going to tighten policy. Right, right. Both monetary and fiscal is required. Um, and again, they, they've got lots of data. They've got lots of equations. Uh, their dynamic stochastic equilibrium models are super, super sophisticated. You'll need an advanced degree in math just to even begin to look at the gobbledygook uh, and right. make sense of it. Right. But they claim that, you know, the, 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 the input that they have, their data, um, leads to this nirvana On output, outside, more yeah. or less. Now, maybe I'm, I mean, to be fair to their case, I mean, they wouldn't. I mean, nirvana is a loaded term, but but the, but they really <laughs> do. They really do believe that they've you know built oh, this sure. better mousetrap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of course, that assumes the data is rock solid and uh, and that these relationships are stable over time. 
when um, history suggests that's not true at all, in part because of Goodhart's law. Uh, the, the, the moment the financial markets sense that the monetary regime is changing, that the fiscal regime is changing, they will position and reposition themselves themselves accordingly. Yeah. Uh, and that can lead to asset bubbles. Uh, that can lead to foreign exchange volatility. Uh, that can lead to all kinds of misallocations of resources. And this is the sort of thing that economists never look at. They don't like the unintended consequences. They don't like the feedback loops. They don't like the behavioral implications of what should be a do what our stimulus tells you to do, heavy-handed command economy attitude. They don't right, like it. Right. Where do you think the wind is blowing amongst the uh, you know, your central bankers and your, uh, your academics and economists, uh, etc., uh, as to... Which of these, which of these sort of schools of thought they uh, they're they're going to go towards or over time? I think there. I think sadly, uh, in part because of the the self serving aspects of what I mentioned earlier. Yeah. That the the the, the free marketeers are still on the defensive uh, following two thousand eight because sadly it's very difficult to control that sort of narrative. It's always easier to say what wasn't done what wasn't done uh, and say we should have done more of that we should have done more of that we should have done more of that it's always easier to say we should have done more in order to achieve you know more growth more this more that it's much harder to say we should have done less because then people think oh but it would have been even worse, worse had we yeah, done less worse. it's just a difficult argument to make um so i i think that the free marketer side is still on the defensive and the and, the, and those that favor a more heavy-handed command economy approach to things are are still in the ascendant hence why perhaps the shadow MPC is suggesting moving towards explicit G, uh, GDP targeting for the Bank of England. However, and there's a big however, the big unanswered question is whether or not inequality is being fueled by the very sets of policies that these modern command, you know, so, uh, so, uh, command economy types have been advocating. Because there's a lot of evidence that it is. Oh, 100%. There's a lot of evidence. And that debate only really started a few years ago. But it, that's now in the ascendant. There are a lot of people who believe that all the asset price inflation that has clearly been generated by central bank policy and excess liquidity and low rates and all of that, that this is the ultimate source of this rising trend towards inequality. And so... The, I mean, there's an argument that the, the reason why the policy didn't work was because that these policies didn't work in the way that they were they were described, uh, or they they were intended to work, because all this wealth was handed to the ultra rich who have very low, uh, you know, low propensity to, spe to that's spend. Exactly such right. high that's exactly right. High percentages. Of, that's right. You know. That's right. So basically, those who had a lot of assets to begin with saw the value of those assets go up even more, and anyone who simply depends for a, a typical wage has seen essentially zero, and in many cases, in fact, uh, depending on the country outright negative real wage growth since the financial crisis of 2008. And central bankers, for the most part, deny they're responsible for this, although it's interesting. There are several retired ones now who, in fact, do hold this view. And, yeah. and, they're, and, they're, and they're chastising their, their successors for not paying more serious attention to what might be a central bank contribution uh, to this trend of rising inequality, which, as you say, is 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 down to this asset channel. Mm. I uh, I heard uh, the other day there was this great there was this great phrase which was uh, populism is a marking to market of a decline in real uh, living standards. 
over an extended period of time like that that's all that it really is and because uh, all that you know everyone in their ivory towers in uh, in the central banks the economists and, and the academics don't really measure real living standards it took them all by surprise when when this is suddenly happening happened but i mean if uh, if if this continues, I mean, because ultimately policy has not changed, regardless of the discussions we're having about it, uh, the policy has not changed. I mean, it sort of uh, sort of implies that the you know we're, we we've really not seen anything yet when it comes to uh, what is described commonly as populism, uh, whatever that may be. Um, it, it, follow, following that though, do you think do you think there are some people who are going to who, who, who are going to say, oh well, we've given all of this wealth now to the the very the very uh, you know not point no no not one percent or whatever, um you know we need we need to start redistributing this somehow. And when you have uh, the MMT guys uh, who who are who are, pull, who are you know that would obviously increase the power of these people by a huge amount because they would be on the fiscal side in government as well as on the on the monetary side in uh, in in the central banks. I mean the, the, this would be a huge expansion of the of the power of the of these people. Uh, do you, I mean do you say do you see this continuing to the point where uh, the redistribution of wealth is then somehow entered into some state. Well, this is th- this is where we really have to be concerned, and this is why Hayek was so concerned. You know, he wrote this famous book in the late 1940s called "The Road to Serfdom." Yeah, it's a good one. Where basically the, I mean, it's 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 a brilliant work, but it, it, you can, you can summarize it in the following way: If you intervene in the economy, you end up creating you know certain negative unintended consequences, and then of course there'll be a political push to deal with those negative unintended consequences. So you intervene in a new way, in a different area. And then that creates negative unintended consequences. And and so you get on this road to serfdom where you know you, you pass one milestone after another on this road, each of which is a new intervention of some kind, which is really just trying to solve the problems created by a previous intervention. All the way back. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and so you get into this sort of insidious, iterative dynamic that eventually leads you to a socialist command economy where the free market really can't function at all, and, and you and you lose any and all vital price information that truly helps you distribute resources in a way that actually serves social needs and wants, um, and you end up just with uh, again a command economy that might serve uh, very well the interests of those at the top. <laughs> oh, hundred <laughs> percent. I, I can imagine. Um, so, so sadly, that's kind of where we are. That, that is the unintended consequence. Call it in this case inequality. Let's just lump it all in there. The unintended consequence of all the out, you know, massive stimulus, monetary and fiscal, post-2008 has created this nasty uh, inequality consequence. And so, yes, now there's a big push for redistribution. But, of course, that weakens property rights, which is the very foundation of capitalism. So you're, you're going in a dangerous direction. Certainly, certainly. Uh, ho- hopefully not one that, uh, that ends with a, a scenario similar to Blood Meridian. I must... Uh, I must say that wouldn't that wouldn't be too well. Great. I mean, look, look I, I don't. I, I, this is um, this is maybe some people regard this as a very simple and facile uh, comparison. But let's not forget that in terms of per capita income, Argentina was as wealthy as most of Europe uh, at the turn of the twentieth century. Um, but they went their their economy one step after another went in the gradually more socialist direction, and they end up completely ruining it uh, by you know the nineteen seventies eighties. Um, and uh, and you know Venezuela is going through it today. Oil I, reserves I mean, that it, were you yeah know. yeah Venezuela was a very wealthy country on a per capita basis in part due to the natural resources. Uh, but look what's happening there now. And so again, I'm not predicting that you know we're we're going to end up like Argentina or Venezuela tomorrow. However, 
this iterative, insidious policy dynamic, um, sadly, in theory, if you take it to its logical conclusion, could eventually get you there <laughs> uh, if we don't uh, wake up and you know stop it. Right, right. It is a uh, yeah. It's it's not not a great great state of affairs, I must say. Um, on that on 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 that note, uh, speaking of, and speaking of GDP. Uh, what do you make of the recent high GDP figures coming out of the states? Because they've been, uh, real GDP has actually been pretty high. Now, do you think that, as, as we were to get, speaking of metrics and uh, Goddard's Law, with uh, where whenever a, a metric is targeted, it uh, loses its value as a metric? I mean, GDP is obviously something that, even though it's not explicitly targeted by central bankers, it's obviously politicians love it. Uh, you know, do you think, do you think it's accurate, these, uh, these latest figures? Well, I, th I think GDP is 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 actually not a very accurate uh, measure of true economic health anymore. I mean, it, there are certain things that it measures well, but there are other things it doesn't measure well. And what it, what it really really struggles to measure are what you would cons what you would call sort of qualitative technological improvements in an economy. Um, it it overcounts certain things, it undercounts others, and, it, it, and it's uh, it's much easier to simply count widgets being manufactured and tally that up as GDP uh, than it is you know all of the, all manner of services and tech and software and it it just it it, it really is a measure that that uh, conceptually originated in the manufacturing based economies uh, of the early twentieth century. And there are other proposed uh, ways now to measure the economy, which I think are probably better, um, but it would take probably a long time for these alternative methods to, um, to convince any you know, material portion of the mainstream economic community. But GDP is misleading. At a minimum, it's misleading. And, and also, uh, the, the way the so-called price deflator or inflation, price inflation is calculated, is also dangerously misleading. Um, they, 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 You're talking cores, uh, like CPI. Yeah. Uh, what exactly do you look at? Uh, to what extent do you incorporate quality improvements? Uh, to what extent... Hedonic you, adjustments. Exactly. To what yeah. extent you allow for substitution? You know, economists will say they're being objective in how they create these aggregates. But there is a saying, your aggregate is your theory. In a way, the way you, you choose to create an aggregate, an aggregate, an economic aggregate is already applying a theoretical view as to how the economy works. And if you're starting with the wrong view of how the economy works, well, then you're going to end up with an aggregate that really doesn't tell you what you think it tells you. And aggregates are the inputs to all of these models. Absolutely. Theories, absolutely. Yeah. Growth, inflation, whatever it is. Aggregate demand. Bingo. Yeah, Bingo. yeah, yeah. absolutely. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, if the... So what what would be and the and the Austrian perspective is of course a hands off uh, free market. Well, yeah. So the Austrian perspective is that um, are there any o Austrian aggregates? Well, yes, actually, yes, right. and, and and some of them in fact are are extremely useful and powerful in in, in ways that are not generally appreciated. Just quickly, um, Austrian economics originates in the idea that an economy is at base an information system. It's an information system, and the the key, the most important piece of information is the price of something, anything. Um, because what you then do is as a, an economic actor, individual, business, whatever, you are constantly comparing prices and constantly making trade-off opportunity cost calculations in your mind, trying to improve your welfare. Uh, and trying to improve your welfare, hopefully in a sustainable long-term way, although 
economies are always full of actors who um, have so-called high time preference. That is, they prefer to consume everything you know today and don't have a sense of saving for the future. But that's what determines rates of interest, the uh, interplay between between those those two types of groups. And and so basically, an economy is an information system, and prices are the information. Okay, the moment you start intervening. The, the moment you start taxing things, the moment you start regulating things. You disturb those prices. And that's those right. And prices Bingo. stop giving, that's right. giving accurate information that's right. to all the other economic That's actors. right. And the single most important price in an entire economy is the price of money itself. Because all prices are denominated in money. They're denominated in the means of exchange. And if you're manipulating that, you're manipulating everything. everything. Yeah. And so economists, uh, Austrian economists are very, very concerned uh, when you see um, these sorts of general monetary stimulus being thrown around. And of course, the Austrians therefore were horrified at the response to 2008. And they warned, some very prominent Austrian economists warned right then and there, this will create asset bubbles, this will exacerbate inequality, this will ultimately destabilize the economy, and we're going to have an even larger crisis at some unknown point in future as a result. Yeah, yeah. So what are the Austrian aggregates? Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, well, Austrians focus uh, on things that you can actually know. That is, things that don't have to be just estimated. So, for example, there's a definition of money supply called Austrian money supply. And what that is, is that's money that can actually be spent right now. You don't need to liquidate anything. You don't need to unwind a position. You don't need to, you know, you don't, you don't even need to go to the bank. It, it, it's money that is, you know, in your pocket ready to be spent, if not in, in, in uh, paper form, in a readily spendable electronic form. Right. So it's not M0, which is... No, yeah. because M0 is kind of phantom money supply. It's bank reserves. Right. 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 And, and bank reserves are not spendable. Though they can be redeemed by commercial banks for notes. Uh, yes. Right. And they also are um, available to lend against. Right, right. But until you've actually lent against them, you haven't anymore. created the actual money that can actually be spent. Right. So Austrians are very careful how they go about constructing money supply. And I would argue... Uh, that um, the way in which Austrian money supply is calculated by Austrians is a better predictor of a real economic growth in the medium term, if not within a few months. It's the better indicator than almost any other indicator we've got. If you want to know what the economy will be doing in 18 to 24 months' time, look at Austrian money supply. It's, mm -hmm. I think it's the single best indicator there is. Where would uh, where would a listener uh, find such a such an indicator of the Austrian money supply? There is an eminent Austrian economist uh, named Frank Schostack, who uh, has some years ago came up with a definition of Austrian money supply that he then systematically applies to trying to predict the business cycle, and he's got a pretty good track record. Frank Schostack, great guy, very very nice guy, very humble guy. Uh, but I think he deserves a lot of credit for the work he's done in this area. Right, right. And uh, do, does he then publish then what the uh, the the behavior? He does. Is? I believe you do need to pay All right. for his proprietary calculations of Austrian money supply, as well as the uh, predictive element they have for what he sees unfolding with the business cycle. Mm -hmm. um, but for you know, for any investor with a you know serious amount of money to invest, uh, you could argue it's it's well worth well worth paying for. Right, right. 
Well, uh, well, John, I know you do have to dash off today, uh, so uh, we will we will end it there. But thank you very much for joining me. That was that was John Butler, who is the uh, chief executive of the Land and Borrow Trust Company. Uh, I am Boaz Shoshan. I'm an editor at Southbank Research. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you do have any uh, suggestions or uh, you'd like uh, any any future guests, do send me an email. That is Boaz B O A Z at SouthbankResearch.com. But thank you very much for listening, and uh, we hope you tune in next time.